Welcome to Hope Plus, a podcast for Hope Community Church. If you're a new listener, we encourage you to check us out at hopecommunity.ca or find us on social media. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, hello, everyone. This is Dave Grun from Hope Community Church. And today for the podcast, I'm joined by first Valerie Frey, who's with me. Hello. And my brother, Sean Grun. That's me. So Sean is in town with his family. And uh, he's the one, if I'm ever referencing a counselor that I know in a sermon or someone who's given me some advice on how to do anything related to counseling, it's him. So (laughs) I finally had him in town. I'm like, hey, can I just interview you about counseling? And uh, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous to interview your brother because he knows too much about me. So that's why I'm here. So if there's any sibling fights, I'm I'm the in-between to break it up. Before recording, Val said we should play a game, Name That Voice. Because apparently, Sean and I sound very much the same. So they say. Well, hey, let's uh, first get the most important piece out of the way. Those of you who have been to our house and had breakfast at our house have had maple syrup that was made on the Groon family property. And the person behind the maple syrup is Sean Groon. There's a few people who have said, is this guy real? Is this actually a legit thing? So I'm going to get Sean to talk about, most importantly, maple syrup. And then maybe you could just say, hey... Uh, tell us something that about maple syrup that people probably don't know. Oh, that could be a long list of things. <laughs> honestly, this is a deep, deep rabbit hole we could go down here. I don't know. Maybe uh, a couple things. One, it's it's much harder to make than you think. You know, and if if you know how maple syrup is made in the in the least, it, it's sap that comes from a maple tree, and you boil down the sap and you concentrate the the little bit of sugar that's in the sap water that comes out of a tree. And that seems like it's really easy to just boil the sap water down, but it's very difficult to do that and very difficult to get a good quality syrup. So, and, and just to get a little bit of perspective, it takes 40 liters of liquid sap that comes from a tree to make one liter of maple syrup. And so if you think about how long it takes to boil water away on a stove of some kind, then it takes a long time to do that. And like all sugars, the closer you get to sugar, the higher sugar concentration in the sap, it bubbles over and it burns really easily once it gets close to being a finished product. So it's actually a very finicky process and it takes a lot of time and energy to make this happen. That's why uh, John will cry if he sees children just dousing their pancakes with his maple syrup and it goes to the, the garbage or the recycling. It's like, no, 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 you don't get to waste you lick maple your syrup. plate. So you lick your plates at our house. Okay. So, as someone from the uh, from Alberta flatlands, mm. if you were to just like lick, taste whatever that's what, whatever comes straight out of the tree, would it taste sugary or no? It tastes like really good water. <laughs> That's exactly okay. what it tastes like. It's 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 not really sweet. You can't taste it. It's three percent sugar. Wow. Ninety seven percent water, but it has lots of great minerals in it. So it actually tastes fabulous. Mm-hmm. So when we're tapping trees in the spring, I'll be out in the bush all afternoon or all morning, and I'm just drinking sap water as my hydration. So cool. it's is really tasty water. That yep. sounds like a lot of fun. And mm. animals know about it. Sometimes the animals chew into it oh. and just drink the water. They've got their own supply of sap water in the forest. <laughs> it's a good life they live. It's a good life. If you ever want to enjoy some good maple syrup and you're in Ontario in March, 
you can go to the Gruen family uh, forest and you can tap trees. Oh yeah, open invitation. Well, hey, we're here to ask you about maple syrup and about counseling. Sean is a marriage and family therapist, but that's actually not his first career. <laughs> so maybe you can talk a little bit about your journey into counseling and where you started and how you got there. Oh man, yeah, out of, well, in high school, I was on a single road track to becoming a small engine mechanic. And so I did. I became a small engine mechanic. I took all my shop classes. They're the only classes in high school I got A's in. <laughs> the rest of my classes, I, well, I wasn't exactly aspiring to anything beyond small engine mechanics. But I think looking back, I can see the thread of even listening to people back in high school. I, I took a spare, which is just an open point in your day. I don't know if that's like common language or in BC. But you're, where you don't have a course during that time, and I would sit by my locker and I wait for people to come by. And as someone who's willing to listen, people do come by and people would share their stories. So like we're talking like a 16, 17 year old boy, which as it turns out is pretty rare. Yes. <laughs> and I, I just, wasn't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that my listening started even back then. And I can see, you know, God's hand kind of shaping me and leading me down this path for a long time. So anyway, I was a small engine mechanic and I did that for about six years full time after high school before really just being like, I like, I like working with my hands, but it wasn't enough. And I found myself, you know, I was working at a lawnmower shop, essentially loading lawnmowers with customers. And I'd be in the parking lot helping load up a lawnmower for half an hour, <laughs> just chatting with people, like hearing their stories. And so it didn't take you half an hour to actually load. No, that's like, so you weren't good at that part of your job. <laughs> Loading the lawnmower was too much. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, but if you're willing to listen, people end up people speaking. Yeah. yeah. And so that, anyway, and but I carried on those skills through all of my you know higher education where I ran a business fixing lawnmowers as well. I did mobile mower repairs. So I'd go to people's homes hmm. and then fix their lawn and garden equipment at their home. And inevitably, I have lots of like interesting stories of people like pulling up a lawn chair, you know, like bringing me things. And then before you know it, we're talking about you know, oh, what are you in school for? Yeah, okay, I'm in school for like becoming a counselor. And oh, that's good. You know, I could have used you like seven, eight years ago and my ex, da, 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 da. And like <laughs> off we go and we're talking about, you know, relationship breakdown and like mental health difficulties as I'm turning wrenches and replacing spark plugs and, you know, doing my thing. Wow. So the, the listening has always been there as I've been using my hands-on skills. I think there's got to be a job that brings those together like, John's engine repair, broken machines, broken families, something like that. I like it. I think <laughs> that's that's a good business model. I've also thought about like, yeah, when you spend time in the sugar shack, that's the place where you boil all of your maple sap down to make syrup in your sugar shack. Uh, there's a lot of time where you're just kind of like hanging out. And I just thought like, oh, we could do like soul craft in the sugar shack. That's good. I like, Whoa, it, right? I like it. That is good. I like it. I like it. There's lots of downtime where you can solve world problems and you know relationship issues and being in a forest alone is therapy oh man yeah well that's kind of what i see i spend a lot of time in my bush you know whether it's like cleaning up fallen trees or tapping trees or repairing sap lines and all the rest and that's kind of what i call my therapy mm -hmm. forest bathing that's mm -hmm. what a friend and i would do i, I don't know how widely known that phrase is but <laughs> same thing just go in the forest forest bathing that's therapy um, so you are a marriage and family therapist. Mm -hmm. Our church 
um, tries as best it can to support people in our church doing counseling. And I'll say what I'd said a couple podcasts ago, that if you're someone listening and you're thinking about counseling, know that uh, we have resources to support that. We know that for some people, the finances are a problem. And so know that this is something we care a lot about, supporting counseling. And I want to start, Sean, with a strange question maybe about counseling, and that is my suspicion about counseling. I've had some interactions with counselors, and I have had this secondhand conversation from people about counseling. And I've realized that, to put it baldly, counseling is a very secular vocation. And the the worldview of the counselor inevitably shapes very deeply the kind of advice they give, the therapy they suggest, what healthy is, their view of a human, what it means to flourish. And so I, I've been discouraged at many points mm-hmm. by what people's counselors have told them. And I realize I'm a biased pastor. I'll be honest about that. But here's my question for you. How do you integrate your faith in Jesus Christ with your practice of counseling? Oh, that's such a, a rich question. And I don't know if I could even fully do it justice here. But I would say, yeah, I, I sh- first of all, I'll say I share a lot of the suspicion. And I think I would, I might boldly say I'm suspicious on both ends of the spectrum. Mm, right. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's a very humanist psychology. Uh, way of thinking about the human person, but then there's also an, a, a biblicizing over spiritualization of the human person. Yeah, and so I would I would say I'm suspicious of both, right? That's and right. I think when I got into counseling in the first place, I was very much pursuing the path of biblical counseling and and trying to be a purist in doing that. And I I don't mean to speak poorly about that necessarily, but that, I I wouldn't say that describes you know where I'm at in my practice right now. I think I've I've worked with a lot of clients that have seen biblical counselors, and again, this is not to criticize biblical counseling as a a way of doing counseling or a perspective. It might speak more to like the particular counselor themselves. So, where you're healing from someone else's previous experience in therapy, mm-hmm. right? So that is one side of it. And I don't just want to just say like you know, oh, secular psychology. That's not good. In some way, it can it can you can tip off you know into the gutters in both sides. I would say, going back to your question, how do you integrate it? That's a good question, and and maybe it's best if I just kind of tell you a bit of the journey, right? So starting off doing biblical counseling, and then I went to Tyndale Seminary in Toronto, and I learned a lot of, I would just say, contemporary models for doing counseling, and I think there's so much good stuff that can be learned there, right? I'm just thinking like family systems theory. That's not exactly a biblical concept, but I think there's something really efficient about knowing family systems, how they operate, you know, and different like principles within that. Like what is triangulation? What do group dynamics look like? What's common within, you know, families in a particular cultural context? It's helpful to study couples therapy and therapy models that actually work. There's a lot of stuff out there to help couples, but not a lot of great stuff that actually produces long-term change. And so I think, and maybe one other piece to that, like there is a whole cognitive side in the secular therapy world, you can't see my air quotes, uh, that is really good to know. Like Mm -hmm. there's just really helpful things to know about cognitive distortions and that type of thing, like common ways that people think that can lead you in a way that's like unhelpful thinking. Mm -hmm. So those are all things that I think I've learned through modern psychotherapy that's not explicitly biblical, but certainly not anti-biblical. Right. Mm-hmm. And these are really helpful concepts that are really efficient 
for doing the work that I do. So I did my undergraduate in philosophy and theology. And I think that kind of created this foundation for how to think about the human person and just how to think in general. And so I think that foundation as in my undergraduate work and then to study humanist psychologies, I think that was really helpful in allowing me to be grounded through it all. Yeah, there is a prevailing worldview in social work in general that is an anti-oppressive worldview. They see the world through the lens of oppression, right? And that is like the dominant theme, you know, that they look at all kinds of problems in the world. So I think if I'm grounded theologically, grounded philosophically, then I can navigate those two worlds. And so I feel like I'm always pulling from the best of both worlds. If all truth is God's truth, then like there's obviously mm -hmm. good things that humans have thought about and studied in the human person over the hundreds of years. That's really helpful and efficient to know as I'm doing therapy with individuals and couples and families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I was just, my, my undergrad is actually in psychology. Mm -hmm. And so I had every plan to follow the path of doing counseling. But as I carried on, like towards the end of my degree, I just started doing more like physiology, like neurology, like mm -hmm. oh, here's your brain on, you know, and looking at the structures and stuff. Cause I just, I was so disillusioned because you'd have one study saying like two opposite things. And I just, well, this, this isn't all of how we flourish. It just seemed, I mean, partially the challenge of just soft sciences and you're dealing with people that are chaotic and oh yeah a huge mixed bag of i want to be better but also i don't want to be better or mm -hmm. you know you have all these selfishness things and all this family history stuff that stops you from growing up well it's helpful just to elaborate on my suspicion to give context to what sean was saying i'm suspicious of counselors that don't have any understanding of human sin yeah and the oh yeah irrationality of our rebellious hearts mm -hmm. and if that doesn't come into play there's going to be a glass ceiling on what healing could look like. Absolutely. Moreover, I think the gift of Christian therapy, and Sean does this well, is that you have an integrated view of what a, a human is. We are relational beings. Mm -hmm. We are emotional beings. And we're spiritual beings. And to crop out the spirituality of a human person in counseling is to say, there's a piece of who you are that is so deep to your humanness as created in God's image but we're not going to talk about that. And that's not going to be part of your healing. It's like, wait a minute, there's a, that really low glass ceiling then. So that might be some helpful context. Yeah, no, and, and that's really helpful. You know, even as we're thinking about something as simple as anxiety, not as simple, that's probably not a good choice of words. But like that is probably the most common thing that I will see in my office, just like people struggling with some kind of high levels of stress, which is just a non-clinical way of saying anxiety. And we can do all kinds of things to help people cope with stress. If, you know, we look at, okay, there's a problem between like how big you think the problem is, your perception of the size of the problem and your underestimation of your ability to cope. Like we can talk about that for a long time and that can be even really effective for a lot of people. And there is some kind of ceiling that you hit. Like, you know, is your life in the hands of a good father? Is your, like, is there something bigger for your life? Is there something that you can put your trust in, mm -hmm. in somebody else, someone else? where you don't have to have it all figured out. Like there is ultimately something that is anxiety relieving about knowing the end of your story and knowing that you fit into something much bigger than yourself. Yeah. That's good. Well, maybe this gives you a chance to tease some of that out. What are some of the most challenging 
and life-giving parts mm. of being uh, a marriage and family therapist. Oh man, there's probably lots I could say here. Uh, thinking about challenging, there are truly some horrible things that you hear. And I think particularly when you get into stories of trauma, mm-hmm. you know, childhood abuse and neglect, like some of those things are like truly heartbreaking stories that you hear. And so there are a few that almost, there are a few that just really stick with me, right? Stories of those things, trauma, abuse, and neglect. And so those are always really hard because you realize that they're human, right? And there are some times in session as a therapist, you're trying to have this professional distance so you're not stuck in the same place that a client is. And yet sometimes there are these stories that just pull you in, right? And it's like, oh, I'm here with you, right? And there's something that's therapeutic about that in the right way. Uh, and in the right dose of that when you're actually with someone in their pain. Um, but those can be really difficult. The ones that pull you in, those are the ones that kind of come home and I'm you know, walking home or driving home, thinking about and stewing about. When children are involved, that's really difficult. Yeah. Like it's, it's thinking through stories about, you know, when you have to call CAS, right? And these are tricky personally because I have children. And it's, it's tricky clinically as well. Like, so on one hand, like you have to make sure it's essential to make sure that children are safe. And so there's an obligation to call CAS. That's the Children's Aid Society. I'm not sure what it's called in BC here. So you have to make sure that children are safe, but then it's tricky because you're trying to maintain a client relationship at the same time. Right. And so like by calling CAS and reporting something like you're breaking the relationship that you have with your client, or it feels like a betrayal. And so you're always managing like your professional obligation which is good and right to keep children safe and this clinical obligation to keep this alliance with your client so that part's really hard and it sometimes it's just impossible to to strike that balance other things that are difficult like couples can be really challenging because it's not just you're, you're not just managing one person in a room right and you're managing yourself in reaction to another person like there's more than just that two-way relationship i'm managing your emotions and managing another person's emotions their interactions between each other and how i'm reacting to each of them right so there's a lot of dynamics in a room when you're kind of holding three people in a room that's challenging i think watching christian couples separate you know when they've given it their all you know or they feel like they've given it their all and they're just at their end and there's nothing that i can say or do that's going to change that at that point so that's Hard. Can I ask you? Um, yeah. So when you're listening to some of these really tragic things, and working at a church, we inevitably get to hear some of the similar kinds of tragedies that people have faced or are facing. Mm-hmm. So how do you have an appropriate level of empathy and engagement, but then also how do you protect yourself from not being sort of swallowed up by their grief? Good question. That is a good question. To be honest, sometimes you do mm. for a moment uh, where you do get swallowed up in the story, you get swallowed up in their lives and the difficulty that they're facing. And then you have to come out of it. And there are different ways that you do that. Uh, one is like there are just clinical tips that you have where you can back out, you summarize the story and you kind of bring it back up to a cognitive level so you can keep moving with it. Right, Because once you're feeling it emotionally, you move out of your cognitive brain into your emotional brain, into your limbic system. And so that's one of my own tricks is like, okay, once I'm there emotionally, then I have to back up. And as I summarize the story to myself and you kind of mirror that story back to the client, 
then you can kind of move out of that. Mm. So sort of envisioning almost a journey away from, okay, this is not my actual story. I'm mm-hmm. going to come back into some place where I can actually handle it. Yeah. So that's kind of in session. Then there are those you know, tips or tricks that you would do like in session. And then after session, I find writing my notes as much as I dislike notes. And I think if there's any therapist out there hearing that, you will, you know, have a sigh or a, <laughs> a gasp of horror. <laughs> a gasp of horror with notes that you have to catch up on yet. Uh, so writing my notes is a really helpful process. I can document what I have to document and I'm processed. I, I've processed what I need to process with that mm-hmm. case and I've written it down. And it's almost like closing a file in my brain. Hmm. Right. So hmm. and I know that's, you know, I have this ability to compartmentalize that some people like to judge, but I've come to learn is really helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to be able to hold a story and kind of file it away until you come back to it next time. Can I ask you the same question, Dave? You have a lot of people mm. that come through the door. You know, as Sean was sharing, I was feeling jealous because you know what counselors have that pastors don't is time blocks and boundaries. <laughs> 15 minute sessions. I give this person my cell phone. How are they still contacting <laughs> There, yeah, I, I think the longer I'm pastoring, I wasn't ready for this question. The longer I'm Sorry. pastoring, the more I'm learning some of those boundaries. And I'm also having to tell myself, Dave Groon is not personally responsible for what has yeah. transpired. And I am not their savior either. Yeah. Like, and I mean, I think to be honest, as a result of being in conversation with Sean, I think one of the faults of pastors is trying to be the counselor and you're way beyond your own skill level. Like I've mm-hmm. obviously taken courses in counseling and I have mm-hmm. a master's as well, but there's things I'll be like 10 minutes in the conversation. I'm like, Oh, Sean's in the back of my head. He's like, tell them to see a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm trying to honor those limits and not yeah. try to be the savior and be okay with that. But yeah, there is definitely an ongoing challenge for me with boundaries and also just trying not, yeah, like pain sharing to use Eugene Peter- Peterson's language of the pastor. You, you mm-hmm. share people's pain. Yeah. Um, but you also have to learn like what kind of boundaries do I need to maintain health in my own family and right. my own marriage. And mm-hmm. you know, Sean, you didn't mention this, but when you're talking, I was thinking there's a reason why Sean does maple syrup and he's outside with nobody else but <laughs> like, right. sap lines right. and <laughs> uh, sap lines and squirrels. That's a so way of rejuvenating. So I think finding those things for me, that skiing with my kids and all sorts of other stuff yeah. like that. So yeah. And I think God has shown up in session more times than I can count. And I think I really come to realize that God is ultimately the great physician. Yeah. And I've kind of gone to my end, you know, working overtime for a client story, you know, for example, Mm -hmm. and realizing like, I can't fix this person. Mm -hmm. I can't fix this person. Like there's nothing I can do or this beyond my powers, beyond the time that I have with this person. Mm -hmm. And then when you reach that line, you're like, I can do no more. (laughs) And then you have to put that somewhere. And, you know, if if there are really challenging cases, I'm like, I'm breath praying, you know, toward the end of session, like, oh, this is not going to wrap up nice. But like, God, I leave this in your hands. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's interesting because a lot of the what you guys have said is exactly where I've arrived as well. Just uh, I also was the high school kid that people talked to. Well, elementary school even mm. people just talked to me about stuff. So same thing. I've had to learn by experience that is not my burden to bear. It might be my burden to share, but then I only have a tiny portion. And the yoke, I suppose, the idea of yoke. If we're talking about burdens and sharing and all that, then it's the yoke of God. So. 
any burden I have, I get to share it with God. So, mm-hmm. so then it's okay. And I, and also I, from a maybe more negative standpoint, I think, well, I didn't cause this problem. I wasn't part of the creation of this thing. So I actually cannot be very much a part of the solution. I can yeah. assist them maybe, or just listen. And maybe that's, you know, that's, uh, so knowing where my limit is for sure, but also knowing it's their job to walk through these hard steps. Yeah. I can, I can walk alongside, but I can't walk for them. So. Yeah. Yeah, And, and that's probably a concept I'll weave into here too, is, is realizing that unless God does something or intervenes in their life in some way, or they are moved forward on what I would call like the spectrum or continuum of change, like the Mm. readiness to change. Yeah. There's very little that you can do. Yeah. Right. And so in, in therapy world, we call it like readiness to change. And there's like pre-contemplative, you know, where they they know there's a problem, they feel that there's a problem, but they're not thinking about what to do with it, right? To yeah. where they move to a more contemplative stage, like, oh, this is really bothering me. And, you know, maybe we should think about doing something about this. And they start to imagine ways to do that. You know, then they're in the preparation stage where they're like, you know, maybe they're actively seeking out therapy or a pastor, or, you know, friend support or something like that. And then like the actual change step, right? Mm-hmm. So we're all on this readiness to change spectrum in different aspects of our life. And it's really helpful for me as a therapist to recognize where somebody else is at mm. with respect to their readiness to change with that particular issue. Mm. So I think when you can identify their spot on readiness to change, then you, you can take the pressure off yourself. It's like, well, it doesn't matter how much I want somebody to change. They're not going to unless they're ready to or God's ready to jump in and do something about it. Right. So you have some expectation management. So if you know 100%. they're at stage one, it's going to be a long time before they actually do anything different. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So you mean I can't change my spouse? <laughs> Whoa. Uh-oh. <laughs> Isn't that the ongoing joke? Don't change me. Change my spouse. They're sitting right there in the counseling office. <laughs> absolutely. Hey, you didn't touch on something that we asked you, and that is, what is what has been the most life-giving part of counseling? Oh, man, yeah. There are a lot of really neat things that I've seen in my office that has been really life-giving. And I, I think if I'm, if I'm honest, the most life-giving stuff is where I see God show up. And that maybe feels like the right thing to say on a cho- podcast that's run by a church. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, those are the most life-giving things. And, you know, in preparation for this, I jotted down a whole bunch of actual client stories just like in you know point form of things that i've seen that are absolutely beautiful right i think the one thing that never gets old is seeing people walk through forgiveness mm. and that might wow. seem like a, a i don't know how that sits with you judging by the wows maybe that landed with you in some oh way. that's huge yeah we did a sorry to interrupt you with a women's study on forgiveness and we saw in live time someone completely transformed by the freedom that comes with forgiving. Oh, man. Yeah. 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 So watching the transformation of forgiveness, maybe that's a better phrase to put mm-hmm. it, it, that never, ever gets old. And it, I've just come to see, like, that's the heartbeat of the gospel mm-hmm. is forgiveness, right? And mm-hmm. so when people get a taste of that, it is transformative. Like, it will do something radical in your life. And so whether that's a couple that I'm working with uh, you know, I currently, I'm, I'm working with this couple now, and uh, it's a very difficult relationship. And I, and I can't understate that. You know, there's like high personality clashes that are happening. They, they miss each other. If you're into Gary Chapman and like the love languages are on completely different ends of the love language spectrum. 
you know, three kids, you know, one with really challenging behaviors. They got a lot of hard things that they're stacked up against them. And so far, you've just described my marriage, actually. <laughs> three You're reading Valster. <laughs> but we're not actually in Ontario and we're not in counseling. So uh, I guess it's not us. <laughs> it's not you. <laughs> Maybe it's familiar. Maybe it's a common story. Anyway, they're en route to separation. And, you know, part of our part of the counseling process has been like, OK, like I'm I'm OK with a therapeutic separation. Right. That's a separation for a specific purpose. It's time limited. It's mutually agreed upon. And there are goals and things that we set in that time for separation. And the idea is that we're coming back together, but you separate for a purpose. Right. It's a therapeutic separation. It has to be something beneficial from it. So we're en route to a therapeutic separation. And I met with them both individually, trying to get their sense of like what the separation might look like and start to doing some of that planning together because being in the same house was just too volatile. Their kids are now exposed to their volatility and, you know, their language is cha uh, changing and they're becoming more aggressive with each other. And so we're walking through this and I just said, something radical has to change here. Like there needs to be some kind of radical way of seeing your wife differently in order for this to work. And so, well, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, well, and I just like in this moment, I didn't pre-think this. I'm like, and you're carrying an armful of resentment. Mm -hmm. And I just had this image of him carrying a whole bag of rocks in his arm. And I think this was one of those like images that sometimes God gives us when we're like yeah. listening and attentive yeah. to him. And I just like, I have this image that every time something happens between you and your wife, like, you know, there's another rock that's put into this bag and you're carrying it. But the bag is not just like the things that were said, it's resentment. Mm -hmm. And you're carrying a load that's too heavy for you to carry. And so he, he just like started tearing up immediately. He's like, mm -hmm. he knew exactly what that meant. And that image was powerful and he ran with it and he added some, you know, kind of built out the metaphor and the image in a really powerful way. And he was just like instantly convicted. He's like, I'm holding resentment. And he's like, mm -hmm. worse contempt mm. and then he's like and even and he just named it like disgust wow and so we were talking about this and he's like and he just said spontaneously i need to let it go i need to put down this stuff and i just said to him like well how how do you want to do that and he's like i need to forgive her and he said these words and like i couldn't have planted them myself for it to have you know incepted you know that way but like there's just this divine moment of god revealing this give me this image and him kind of landing with that and running with it and making that recognition himself i have not forgiven her for anything she's done i don't actually know what that means or what that looks like in our in our marriage and so when we walk through that and he just like he's like you know, part of when we're meeting in these individual sessions i'm like okay what's your level of commitment to the repair of the relationship not even like commitment to the relationship, commitment to the repair of the relationship. And I say, well, I'm, I don't know if I can commit to the relationship, but I can commit to forgiving my wife. Mm -hmm. I just thought like, that's good enough for me. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's, that's ultimately amazing. going to be more powerful than your, your commitment to repairing the relationship. Well, once you forgive, then so many things just mm -hmm. fall into place and so many problems fall away. Yeah. Because it's so, well, it lifts up everything. Like, I really love the rock image. 
it weighs you down. And the other person generally doesn't see you carrying all these rocks of resentment or unforgiveness. They feel it because you're right. angry and you're irritable Spitting and you're tired. Oh, yeah. And spewing yeah. rage and yeah. horrible yeah. things. So seeing that kind of thing in, in session, like, that's what I mean. Like, forgiveness doesn't get old. Like, you know, at the end of that session, like, we're both in tears, you know, kind of holding it together. But we're in tears recognizing, like, the weight of this moment. Wow. That's amazing. That's good. What's the most common stuff you deal with in your practice? I think hands down, like I said earlier, anxiety, that's a big one. Depression, I mean, is probably up there with anxiety, but I don't specialize in depression the same way. So some of my answers to what, what I see the most is actually just tailored to me and the kind of therapy that I'm, that I'm doing and the niche that I've kind of built, right? But anxiety is a huge one, right? So relationship, couple conflict, that's another huge one. Being a male therapist, I see a lot of porn in my office. You know, when men are coming to my session, I, I kind of just assume that there's porn as part of the picture. Sometimes people come presenting with that and say, I want to work on this. Other times, it's just part of it, right? And even, or I should say, often in the context of marriage as well. I, you know, like I'll ask, you know, him when we do our one-on-one -on -one sessions, like, you know, what part of your life does porn play? How does this play a part of, you know, the marital conflict that we're experiencing here? So is it a presumption that porn is, if there's marital conflict, most probably porn is a part of the equation? Statistically, yes. Huh. The numbers are really high. They're really high. What are the numbers? The last one I read, and this probably, this from Closing the Window by Tim Chester, uh, I think the number was 86% of men have viewed porn in the last 30 days. Hmm. Right, And actually in that same paragraph in the book he did oh there's a promise keepers i don't know if you've heard of promise keepers kind of like a men's you know retreat of sorts conference anyway in that conference in 2010 so this is 13 years old data so you can only imagine what's happened over the course of the pandemic i'm sure it's gonna weigh down and yeah. weigh down right when people are locked in their house nothing else to do boredom is an all-time high stress is an all-time high yeah that's cell phones everywhere exactly that are much more powerful yeah, so in 2010, 56% of pastors at the Promise Keepers event, pastors and church leaders viewed porn in the last 30 days, right? Wow. So it's, uh, I do assume it's part of the equation, but also by wording it that way, it it not depathologizes it, but it makes it, it like, it question. disarms, yeah, and it makes it easier to talk about, okay, I'm the therapist isn't freaked out if I say the P word. Mm -hmm. Porn, anxiety, relationship conflict, I think one of the other things that I see more now just because of the niche work that I'm doing is burnout, right? So I specialize in seeing a lot of pastors and church leaders in general. And so mm. that is a huge issue, especially post-pandemic. You know, leaders, you don't know anything about this. Uh, you just like all the shifts that had to happen, the things that are put on your plate because of the pandemic, uh, the working overtime, the, you know, increase in pastoral needs. Uh, you're you're now like a counselor, a pastor, a tech, you know, expert, and moving to all this stuff. That's our tech expert. Yeah, okay. I'm going to start having anxiety attack right now talking about the pandemic yeah, like requirements. Just, there's just so many things that are put on leaders just to navigate communities, you know, who are like utterly divided on all things related to COVID and lockdowns and vaccines and. And on it goes, right? So anxiety is at an all-time high with pastors and church leaders. And you can only do that. You can only sustain that level of engagement and tuning into your community and caring for so long before you 
burnout. And there's different names for it. You know, compassion fatigue is one of those that are experienced a lot by first responders and helping professions in general. Police. Yeah. Yeah. Police, nurses, firefighters, um, school teachers, uh, therapists. Yeah. So there's a high rate of burnout in those types of professions. So that's your niche? You haven't said explicit. What's your niche? Yeah. So I do attachment-based counseling. So I could expand on that a lot. And so that works a lot with individuals, families, and couples. And then I work with pastors and church leaders. So those are the two kind of like main areas, attachment and pastors and church leaders that I do. And so in, when you're working with, especially the pastors, church leaders, burnout, it's a huge one that I'm seeing. I want to loop back, Sean, to what you're saying. Well, you didn't mention addiction, but I will. Mm. You're talking about pornography. Like talk about addiction, because I feel like that's on the rise since COVID. And just a gut sense I have is most people who are addicted to anything, whether it's alcohol, pornography, or food, or gambling, mm -hmm. usually they're the last ones to know. And so maybe it'd be helpful for you to sketch out, like, when is something an addiction? If it's, I don't know if that's an impossible question, but. Well, in some ways it is, because it depends who you ask, right? I'm just thinking of Gabor Mate, who is, you know, Vancouver's very own MD and physician in this area. And he studies a lot of, like, trauma. And when you look at, you know, traumatized populations, you know, working in the downtown east side of Vancouver, there's all kinds of addictions. Anyway, what I was going to say with that is like, he would say that any kind of repeated undesirable behavior would be an addiction to something, whether that's drugs, alcohol, you know, but then there's a long list of things that aren't necessarily chemically addictive. And I'm just thinking like gambling, shopping, porn, cell phones, cell phones eating, right? These are all things that are not necessarily addicted to a substance although you could make the argument that like you know alcohol and drugs you know there's a substance that you'd be addicted to in all of the other behavioral ones there's there tends to be an addiction to the dopamine in your own body it's a hormone that's released when you're in search of something right so when you're in search of porn for instance you're getting like dumps of dopamine in your brain which is a feel-good hormone attached to the search of something and so when you frame it that way, it helps you understand a lot of the other mm -hmm. addictions, like shopping, so like you're in search of a particular brand or model of something, and you go to town trying to find the right color and shape and size and all these things. And so you're getting dopamine released in your brain in search of the thing, right? So that too is an addiction. Gaming, it's addictive because you're always in search of the next, whatever it is, point level, level up you know, all the rewards, the micro rewards that you get along the gaming uh, process, like all of that is like dopamine released in your brain at the right times that is like perfectly engineered by psychologists and psychiatrists to have the right amount of dopamine mixed with the right amount of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, you know, just to keep you going, right? Balancing out that the stress and reward is like the perfect uh, thing to keep you addicted to a game they're like the chicago mix of right. game. chicago mix is like we found this sugar fat salt sweet spot absolutely the trifecta that's right do you think i just was thinking you had mentioned the pandemic and i was thinking about you know after the pandemic of a uh, hundred years ago we had the roaring 20s where people mm. well they did two things based on some of the reading i had done where they both sought religion after the pandemics mm. and also first world war were over and also then if they didn't go that way or maybe after they found god and then they they went freedom crazy and then we had this roaring 20s of all sorts of 
chaos and interesting lifestyle choices. And I wonder if we're not kind of there again. Is it like you said, people are searching for something. Well, what? Are, why are they searching? Right? They're searching because they're empty from something else. So, do you have you found that there's been an increase in people clamoring to get uh, counseling post pandemic? I would say yes, because everybody's dealing with something. To you know, kind of frame this within the context of addiction. You know, with addiction, we're looking to avoid some feeling that I don't like. Right. And sometimes separate, but a lot of times connected and feeling something that you do like, mm. right? So in some ways where addictions are always regulating our emotions, right? So we're using our actions, behaviors, and substances to regulate our emotions. And that's where addictions often fits in. And I think culturally, socially, anxiety is at an all-time high, mm-hmm. right? And as we are in this space of, you know, incredible affluence and wealth we have everything that we could possibly well i shouldn't say that want or desire like that's insatiable but compared to every other previous generation Mm -hmm. we are the most obsessed with our comfort Mm -hmm. and hyper aware of all of the little tiny things that make us uncomfortable micro inconveniences micro inconveniences and so when you are like you have to be careful what you pay attention to because what you pay attention to becomes important to you, right? And if we are chronically paying attention to the micro inconveniences, the micro stresses of our life because we don't big stressors, right? I'm thinking like mm-hmm. a lot of places in the Middle East, like mm-hmm. these are huge stressors, right? Happening yeah. in the world right now in Ukraine and Russia. So when we are hyper-focused on our micro inconveniences, our anxiety goes up. Right. And so we're just paying attention to our anxiety more because we're like tuned in, hyper tuned in to our own experiences. So one more reason to go have an outside hobby that's hard and laborious Mm -hmm. and slow, because then you have to deal with discomfort of being in the forest all the time, taking forever for this thing, all that stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. Hmm. I'm curious, Sean. This might also be a tricky question to answer, but. People struggle with many things, as you mentioned. They have all sorts of hardships in their life, whether they're big or small. A lot of people are probably listening with this question, so I'll ask it. When is it time to go see a counselor? Mm-hmm. Like, is there a point where you're like, you know what, now now there's some empirical reason that I can give you that you should go see a counselor? Or there's, I don't know, a general rule of thumb. Yeah, that's a tricky one to quantify in some way, right? There's no, well, maybe there is some online test where you could say, should I see a counselor? Yes. <laughs> always. The answer is always yes. Sponsored by Counselors Are Us. That's right. Yeah, so I don't know how to quantify that necessarily to say like, oh, when should you? Maybe just in broad terms, I would just say like, if you're trying to make changes in an area and you tried all the things that you can think of to try and you can't find yourself making those changes, then that's a good time to see a therapist. Mm. And so often we find ourselves like, I, this might be the other way of saying it, like if you know what you need to do, but you can't do it, then go see someone to get you help to do that. That's good. So, so let's say um, you, you're like, okay, I want to have counseling, but the next step can be tricky too, right? How, mm-hmm. how do you go about finding a counselor that so you don't have to weed through a whole bunch of people like, oh, that's not a fit. That's not a fit. How do you suggest people go and find a counselor? Go talk to Pastor Dave. Perfect. Wow. <laughs> okay. There we go. You know, it's funny no. that you say that. All right, go ahead. 
There's lots of places to find counselors, right? So my ad, for instance, is on Psychology Today. That's probably the, mm. the biggest like directory of therapists out there, right? So that's one place you can go. And there's different filters that you can put in based on specialty group or specialties and kind of models that you use or whether they're Christian or have a faith-based background or not. Uh, there's lots of different filters that you can put in to find someone to help make a good connection the first time and not having to go through several therapists. Uh, but word of mouth is always the best way to get connected to somebody, right? If someone had a good experience, if someone did not have a good experience, mm. to share those things. So it's not a straightforward path. I mean, online is probably like your, your largest resource, um, but also talking to other people that you trust and if they have you know any insights or awareness of people in the field. First of all, that's the first time I've ever heard you call me Pastor Dave. It's weird to have my brother call me that. <laughs> you have to <laughs> Counselor Sean. Counselor Sean, yeah. Nobody says that, by the way. Counselor Sean and know, Pastor it makes it weird Dave. to be called a pastor. <laughs> One of the things that we've done as Cloverdale Churches is we've shared our best resources of counselors because I find lots of pastors are like, okay, I'm new to the city. I want to know who are the good counselors. And so we've actually formed somewhat of a database where mm. we say, here's like 10 very good counselors, good counseling practices that we trust. I'm happy to help in that regard. If you're looking for one, I'd be very delighted to resource you and share even you know people in our community who've had a really good experience with some. And I'll give a shout out to Elsha, yeah. who runs uh, Healing Place and Soul Matters, um, as well as Peace Portal Counseling, because they've been a gift to our church. For sure. Okay, so Sean, this is a big one. It's like a personal burden of mine for two reasons. I think sometimes the work of therapists is very separated from the work of the church. And we live in a professionalized world where sometimes what's happening in the counselor's office with a couple is totally unrelated to the church that that couple is part of, or individuals, or whatever the case may be. And I guess my question is like, when you meet with couples who are part of the church, and you hear the challenges, if you could give advice to leaders in the church or pastors like me, like, what are some ways that we can do church differently that cares for people and deepens people and strengthens people in the life of Christ? And that could be, for lack of a better phrase, preventative in terms of the work you do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I wish I had a nice, neat, and tidy prescription for you, and then we'd solve a lot of church people problems. I can't underestimate the power of relationships as you know a preventative measure and uh, and a healing measure right so this actually cuts both ways because i think when people are suffering the most it's usually because of their relationships are fractured in some way right and there's different ways you could talk about that the relationship with god like that's one way that a relationship is fractured and we have a faulty image of god you know could talk for a long time about that relationships with other people whether that's a parent or a child or a spouse or a friend or something like that our mental health suffers when our relationships are strained, right? And maybe case in point for that is like when you lose somebody through death in any way, like there is a mental health impact that happens as a result of that. Like relationships are separated or broken or something like that. And so if we know like, well, yeah, relationships are huge in being the source of mental health struggles. They're also a huge source of resilience and healing. So relationships are huge. So something that we can do as a church is just like developing robust communities. And I wish I had a nice answer in terms of how to do that, but it's absolutely essential to develop communities that are not just like the family unit, but is bigger than that, where we're families together and where singles have a place and married couples have a place and youth have a place. Because 
relationships are one of the greatest resilient factors to mental health issues. So I would just say that that's kind of my paradigm for thinking through mental health issues or presenting issues. I see the world through relationships. That's my lens as a marriage and family therapist. I see mental health through the lens of relationships. Helpful. Right. So relationships suffer, mental health suffers, and then mental health can repair and or heal mm-hmm. as relationships are more robust and strong. So that's kind of like a philosophic, you know, 30,000 foot view of, you know, what churches might be able to do, but it comes out of like the research and in, in practice, what it looks like. Our mental health is, you know, often resulting from broken relationships and the healing comes through, you know, strong and robust, safe relationships and, and people that you feel secure with. Mm-hmm. That's often a huge part of the healing. That's I, exactly what small groups are. I'll just put a plug mm. in for small groups. Mm. You <laughs> were going where I was going. <laughs> the opportunity for community is enormous. And so then when you have struggles, then you have people who are around you who are already committed to you. I, I use the word fidelity, right? Where you mm. have this deeply trusting bond. So then you are able to expose mm. your real self. And then when you already have these people that care for you and you have some life together, then they can walk alongside you because you're able to be honest with your real yeah. stuff. So everybody sign up for a small group. But also I just want to like, I think that's great. Like it, it really is like, I think an important way that the church needs to move is like breaking down the individualism of our lives and like developing communities. And at the same time, I just want to burst the bubble. Like that's hard work. Like it's hard enough to work to do with your own family of origin. Never mind inviting like complete strangers into that. Right. And so the hard work comes through long term stable mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. right so i'm just thinking like in our church we have these groups called missional families they're families families plural on mission together where we do dinner every week and it's like holy chaos for dinner time right just like kids you know that everyone's involved and it's and you got to sweep the floor and scrub the floor when you're done but like that's a good time together but we're building relationships and it's difficult at times right and so i can't underestimate it's hard to be to have intentional relationships but it's also worth it in the end in long-term relationships because you can't have a safe and secure relationship with someone without putting in the time and having that relationship tested yeah absolutely yeah the whole concept of uh, hospitality where you let someone into your closed door space and Mm -hmm. and let people confront who you really are it's very scary but also it's essential yeah we haven't even mentioned the word shame yet but as soon as we start talking about shame like that's where Mm -hmm. this comes in right we don't want to be seen yeah yeah we really resist being seen in in a vulnerable way absolutely because if if you put up a face a fake face well who cares if they reject you but if you're saying here's who i really am and they hurt you then they really hurt you there's no pretense there so yeah you have to be ready for all that stuff which is kind of a terrifying thing in a world that's quite superficial and well back to our addiction conversation you want a quick hit of happiness real relationships are the long long process it's the real deal takes time it takes time to uh, boil off that water so you get the sweetness <laughs> that's right <laughs> good callback yeah you know as i'm listening to you one of my final reflections as I think think about our own church and our community together, I feel that the challenge of what you're saying there, because it's not easy to form mm-hmm. meaningful community. 
Yeah. It takes so much vulnerability. It takes so much trust. It takes time. And forgiveness. And forgiveness. Yeah. yeah once you get to know each other, like, that's who you are. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm not ready for this. <laughs> and they're saying the same about you. Yep. I, I'm challenged to, I think it's David Kinneman who talks about the state of Western churches. That would include Canada. And he says, you know, in a lot of churches, especially the larger churches, and I think in Canada, ours is probably, my American standards ours is small, but Canada ours is probably above average, but you can be in a big church and be extremely lonely mm-hmm. and not known. In fact, people choose churches mm-hmm. so that they can remain anonymous and mm-hmm. unknown. And in so doing, mm-hmm. you you are resisting what makes you more fully human. And I, I'm feeling the more, the more I'm in ministry, how challenging it is to form a community that actually has deep relationships mm-hmm. that actually lead to the health of people. And maybe this is my final takeaway. This is the one I forgot. I wonder if the mission of the church in our very lonely cities is going to be healthy relationships that our very being bears witness to how we were Mm -hmm. created Mm -hmm. in a way that's like, wow, I don't know anything about Jesus, but I'm looking at these groups within the church where they love each other. They're sharing meals together. They actually, they seem to have a way of living well together that fills Mm -hmm. them. And we don't have that in some Mm -hmm. way or another. No, agreed. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we have to almost, well, we do have to slow down, mm-hmm. spend more time outdoors, <laughs> and less time on our phones to do that. Yeah. Play, um, who is it that talks about having space in the margins oh. so that when someone needs you, you have space mm-hmm. and that you have space for your to allow people to come into your home, that you put that in the rhythm of your life? Yeah, availability. I love how Sean can somehow find a way to talk about getting outside and <laughs> with the trees in any conversation. In order for us to be a missional church, we need to go out and get maple syrup. <laughs> well, it's really, it is a prophetic act to slow down, grow your own food, mm. not have a television or watch very little television and use your phone less. Yeah. That is, that is a prophetic thing in itself. And I think that will push you into relationships. One into, a, I think, a more right relationship between you and God, which is essentially like your relationship with you and you, right? And it'll push you into relationships with other people in a healthy way. And so like having right relationships with people, deep relationships with people is a prophetic act. And like the very participation in the lifeblood of Christ himself. It just brings also, so I recently picked a whole pile of grapes off my vine. This is the first year we've had tons. Mm. And so for the last few weeks, I've been slowly letting some of the juice ferment. So I have been making wine over the last few weeks and every day I smell it and and it's becoming wine and it's an astounding thing. So never again will I take for granted a bottle of, you know, pre-made anything (laughs) because it's been months and months and years really when I planted the vine years ago and this is the first year I have enough grapes to actually do something with and now it's weeks and and I don't know what's going to end up but it has been kind of this meditative thing restorative slow makes me extremely grateful like it just seems to put a lot of my humanity I don't know just into perspective I suppose slowed me down so it's been yeah really lovely One of the other things I was thinking about in terms of being part of groups, part of church, part of small groups and and such, and this is just thoughts around how do we lead groups like that or how do we lead as leaders in the church or as pastors is just a few things I was thinking about, like how can we do this really well? 
And the one thing that came to mind to me the most, like when pastors or leaders give advice, right? And we all knew the small group leader that has like the right answer for the right question. And, you know, there's, <laughs> or we could give advice or we shut conversations down. So if there's advice, I know there's some like deep contradiction here. If there's advice I can give to those giving advice, <laughs> it's like, do less of it. <laughs> so good. Keep going. Right. So I think in a lot of cases, there are very few times when there is the right words you could say or the right one single singular path forward to a situation. And there are those people that look like they have all the right answers and they're very quick and they're very opinionated and it seems like they have the right thing, but they often don't because there are just too many variables for one person's life to know the right thing in that right moment. And even if it is the right thing to do, most people don't follow somebody else's advice. Yeah, It doesn't actually mobilize somebody into right thinking or right behavior or right heart orientation. It just might be the right thing to do, right? And sometimes that's what we need. And I don't want to like shoot that down. And there are times when people are coming to us for advice, but rarely does it motivate people you know, in a long-term or sustainable direction. It might just teach them what to do or tell them what to do in a particular moment of time with a very specific issue, with very specific like parameters around what that issue is. That's right. So I think advice giving doesn't usually work. Mm -hmm. And so I think we actually yeah. need to slow down. If we're going to walk with people and this, you know, whether in a pastoral position or in a leadership position or in a small group leadership position, if we're going to journey with people, we actually just have to slow down. Mm-hmm and listen, listen to what people are saying and to almost get inside their head of how they see the world. And this is some of the most difficult thing as a therapist, I would say, is to slow down to listen to how somebody else is constructing the world in their own mind so that you can leverage them forward or find the block that prevents them from taking that next step. Mm. Right. And it's also the most rewarding because when it, when you get there, they click, it clicks, yeah. you can see it in their face, in their eyes, yeah. you see it in their reaction, but then you can start to move with them mm. uh, because one, they trust you. It's like, oh, you get it. There's that mm -hmm. moment like, mm -hmm. oh, I see my emotions in your face mm -hmm. and now we can move together. Yeah. And you can move with them and you find something, some kind of way forward that they can own. And once they own it, then they're free to move in that way. So as a community, it's not about advice giving. As we're, if we're living in you know community together and just kind of like fixing problems and telling people what to do, it's like truly journeying with them relationally, spiritually, emotionally, in all these different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking when my sister-in-law died, it no advice would have made a single bit of difference, but it was simply that people commented or said something, anything, you know, looked at you and said, yep, I acknowledge your person mattered. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was just the number of people, the amount of people that came up to us and said, we care about what you're going through. Advice would have been completely useless. Yeah. So we've, we've lived it, but then also I have seen it in terms of, you know, trying to put into practice more of just straight up listening, mm -hmm. being a lot more quiet and just listening and asking questions or, or the line of, tell me more about that. Yeah. Like there's so much power there as people unravel their own thoughts and slow down enough to understand mm -hmm. what their thoughts are, to have people reflect back to them. 
Well, I heard you say this. Did you notice that? Or when you said that thing, you got really fidgety. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. So I've just seen the power of all this slow listening. It's it's astounding. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you kind of named it like asking questions, right? Like open-ended questions. And, you know, maybe people know what that is, but an open-ended question invites more response, like more than a one-word answer. Mm-hmm. A closed-ended question is like any kind of answer that is like a yes or no or a good or bad or those kinds of things. <laughs> open-ended questions, those are like really helpful. Yeah. Another really practical question, I'll just leave this one with you <laughs> and whoever's listening to this, is like when you see that someone's upset about something in any way, like upset, angry, you know, or upset, just worked up or passionate about something, just a simple question of like, what's at stake in this for you? Mm. Right? Like wow. it, it really gets underneath it. And I think, you know, whether you're in conflict or just in relationship or around a, you know, a boardroom meeting or something like that, like what's at stake about this for you? Because you're seeing the passion, you see the emotion, but they're not actually stating, stating the value that's at work here, the motivation kind of underneath that. Yeah. Right. So like what's at stake? Okay. And then you'll, you'll find the meeting point when you're asking that question. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yeah, that matters to me too. And then you can connect on that and you can build something on, right? You can build the kind of conversation based on agreement. Get them to be thinking instead of just emotioning. Emotioning, yes. There's there's your word of the day. (laughs) Thank you. You know, I feel really challenged by that, these comments, because I do think I'm tempted towards giving advice. And I think this is a challenge that you probably share, Sean. There are situations that I'll, I'll be listening to someone's story or a couple's story, and I can see. At least as far as I can see, I'm like, I see the challenge that they don't see. Mm-hmm. What I want to do is just say, hey, here's the problem. Obviously. And, and this one piece of advice Sean has given to me is like, when that happens, Dave, it doesn't matter what you think or what you see. What matters is how they see yeah. and what they're going through. And your job is to listen yeah. and to not try to short circuit their healing mm-hmm. process. Because it's one thing to see. It's another thing to act. It's another thing to be committed to the, the reconciliation, the healing together. Yeah. And I've always been thinking, as soon as they know what I think is the problem, they'll act on that and they will right. do this and then they'll never have to see anyone again. <laughs> and I just realized what you said there is so deep and challenging for people like me who can be impatient. Yeah. And this comes back again to like, let you haven't said this yet, but you've mentioned to me before, letting go of control mm-hmm. over someone's process, over their healing, yeah. over where it's going to go because you don't have control. And your job is to to really honor that person by listening well. And maybe in that listening, you will be a gift to them by helping them say and articulate what's really going on. Yeah. One of the things, and I say this from a really deep place of experiencing, like hitting that wall in session where like, I don't know what to do, is realizing like God is the great physician and the healer. And I know when I'm not on my game, I'm trying to give advice or lead them faster than they're willing to move or able to move to satisfy either myself in feeling good as a therapist, like I'm helping them, That's right. mm-hmm. or to resolve my anxiety about their life problems. Yeah. Or the fact that they're paying you to solve them. There is that, right? But I think, you know, as a pastor, uh, in a pastoral position or in like other church leadership forums, like often advice given can fall into managing my own stress about your stress yeah right and so i'm trying to move you along faster than you're able or willing to move in order to resolve my own tension yeah that's good well can i say thank you for joining us sean 
I'm thankful for your wisdom. I'm thankful for your love of the Lord that leads you to counsel well. And I'm thankful that you're a counselor that lives well within the church. You don't uh, sit there at a distance criticizing pastors for all they don't get right about mental health and relationships. There's a lot you know that I don't, and I appreciate the way in your own life you are committed to your local church. You lead well within it, and you love it, and you're not jaded by it in light of all the things you see in your counseling practice. So, Yeah, yeah thanks, John, for coming and sharing a lot of the same convictions I think Dave and I both have about the strength mm -hmm. of community, importance of relationships. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. <laughs>